0: Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church Essentials Podcast with your host, Senior Pastor John Sauer. This week, Pastor John will walk us through part four on the essential doctrine of the Trinity. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, and welcome to Stonebridge Essentials. I am Pastor John, and we continue our study of the Trinity. In the Stonebridge Essentials series, we are looking at different essential f- beliefs. Um, we'll be doing the Trinity this summer. Next year, we'll be looking at the resurrection. And the following year, we'll we'll be looking at justification by grace through faith. But we've been looking at this mystery of the Trinity, this teaching of the Trinity. And in the first week, I talked about how it's just important that we reflect on theology, that we reflect on the Trinity. And I put forward that there's mystery inherent in the Trinity. And that that's not a negative that that is actually one of the positives of this doctrine of the Trinity. In the second week, we talked a bit about the history of how this doctrine developed. Some of the politics involved, some of the personalities involved, really highlighting that all of this has a messiness to it. It has human beings behaving like human beings so that we can get this document that's called the Nicene Creed. And then last week, We took a little detour from the Nicene Creed to point out all the other times that others have taken detours from the Nicene Creed. We looked at the heresies that have developed around the Trinity. Some of those heresies led to the development of the Nicene Creed, and some of those have been in response to the Nicene Creed. This week, we get to come back to the Nicene Creed, to look at the actual text of this creed. Before we look at that, though, I do want to briefly talk about creeds in general. These confessions, or these creeds, sometimes they can feel ancient and remote, and we can feel detached from them. But these creeds, they're helpful, I think. And we set them aside to our own detriment. This confession of the Nicene Creed... This represents difficult work, the work that I talked about in Episode 2, that Christians have done so that we can talk about the Trinity well. These creeds, they give us language to talk about difficult concepts. They pass this down for us so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every single year that the Church exists. Christians before us have wrestled with these questions and they've come with these formulations and it's been passed down to us. So the Nicene Creed, as I've stated, what this creed does is it helps us talk about the Trinity. It does not answer every question. It doesn't give explanation. It gives assertions. It doesn't give definitions. It gives assertions. It shows us, without answering every question, how to talk about the Trinity. And this week, we are going to be diving into this creed and looking at it closely. So right now, if you're listening to this and you don't have the Nicene Creed in front of you, if you can, if you're not running or cooking or doing something else while you listen to this, if you can, I'd encourage you go and look up a copy of the Nicene Creed. I'm gonna be using the version that is in the Presbyterian Church USA Book of Confessions. There are different versions out there, but I'm gonna be reading from that English translation of this creed. And if you can, have this in front of you as we discuss here. But we're gonna be looking at what this creed says. What are the positive affirmations that it makes? Some of this stuff is going to sound basic and like you you already assume it others of it hopefully will make some connections and we'll talk about some of the key terms as well so join with me now in hearing the words of the nicene creed i'm going to read it beginning to end and then we'll dive into it together the nicene creed states we believe in one god the father almighty maker of heaven and earth and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So that is the Nicene Creed. That is the language that has been passed down for us To help us talk about the Trinity. So the first thing to point out here is that there is a very obvious Trinitarian structure to this creed. In the first section, you have the one line that focuses focuses on God the Father. It's a simple line of, We believe in one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. The Father gets the least amount of description in the Nicene Creed. Part of this is because it's hard to understand the nature of God. It's hard for us to describe the nature of God the Father in words, because the best revelation of God the Father is Jesus the Son. So you get a brief description of the Father here, but there are some important details for us to lift up. I mean, first off, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Maker is also creator. This makes it very clear that we are talking about God of Genesis. God of Genesis 1, the creator of the world. The God of creation. That is the God that we are talking about. And this ties us to the God of Israel and the God of the Old Testament. The other thing to point out here is that language of God the Father That's Jesus' language for God that is used. It's also Paul's language that Paul uses. And for both Jesus and Paul, God the Father was tied to the God of Israel. So any sort of assertion that God is separate from the God of the Old Testament, that the God of the Nicene Creed is different from the God of the Old Testament, that is simply not true. This is the language that Paul and Jesus used in God the Father. It's also the language of Creator and Maker of Heaven. And there is continuity here with the God of Israel. So that is the God that we are discussing. In the second section, we get Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where you're going to get most of the really relevant and debated over and fought over language in this creed. Because... Pretty much everyone who embraces the message of the Bible agrees that there is God the Father and that God the Father is tied to the God of Israel and that is the God that that we worship. Where you get the real debate around Trinitarian issues is whether or not Jesus is in the same tier as God the Father, in the same category as God the Father. And the Nicene Creed emphatically states yes, Jesus and God the Father are one. Notice the language here. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father. All of that language was heavily debated. All of that language was fought over. And this was the language that ended up winning the fight. One substance with the Father. This is where some of the mystery enters into this. It's hard for us, thinking about the Trinity, trying to reflect on the Trinity, to think about what it means that somebody can be two persons but one substance. But that's what we have here. That's the assertion that is made here. And again, this is an assertion. It's not an explanation. This doesn't tie it all up in a a clean knot. It doesn't wrap it up to open up on Christmas. This is simply an assertion that they are of one substance. That word substance was maybe the most debated term in the debate over the Trinity. Somehow, the crafters of this looking at scripture reflected and said that Jesus and the Father are of the same substance but can appear in two different places, can have two different forms of agency, and yet are still connected. This is difficult for us to understand. But this is still the best description of how Jesus and the Father interact. Jesus states over and over again in Scripture, he and the Father are one. Jesus is given the status of divinity in the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John and a little more subtly but still present in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus is treated as God and talked about as God. And and Paul, in his letters, prays to Jesus, lifts Jesus' name up to that of the Father. So all the evidence in the scripture says that they are somehow equal. That they are of the same substance there. But then there is that distinction. There's another phrase here that was heavily debated. That's in this section. Begotten, not made. And again, this is another one of those mysterious phrases in the Trinity. The mysterious assertions in the Trinity. What this says is that whatever substance God is, Jesus was also that same substance. That Jesus was begotten, not made. God didn't take new physical material and craft Jesus out of that. Remember, that was the assertion of Arius. The Arian heresy said that Jesus was made. That there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. Nicaea says Jesus has always been part of the Father's substance. But that when Jesus came to earth, he was begotten. That this this substance had a, a, a separate personality. And that this took place well before time ever existed. And that there was never a time where Jesus did not exist. Things that are made, they have a point where they did not exist. Then they were made, and now they exist. But that term begotten, it meant that Jesus came from the same substance of God. And that's what Nicaea tries to help us understand. Again, not understand perfectly, not be able to explain what this looks like, but help us understand how to talk about it. That Jesus was begotten, not made. And then it goes into the Incarnation, helping us to understand that Jesus was made man, made human, became a human being, being the very substance of God, being God of God, light of light, very God of very God, became human also. That's where you get some of that begotten language there. And then that Jesus was crucified, that he suffered, and on third day he rose again. Now, this is a key point of the Trinity that gets overlooked. Remember, the claim of the Nicene Creed is that Jesus is very God. That Jesus is God, the same substance of God. But that Jesus suffered. The suffering of God is right here in the Nicene Creed. God's mission of suffering on behalf of humanity, God's mission of sacrifice on behalf of humanity, is right here in the Nicene Creed. You could even say that the reason Jesus was begotten was so that God could suffer on our behalf. There's a a big debate in theology right now over what takes logical priority, election or trinity. This debate is focused on whether or not God took on a Trinitarian form so that salvation could be accomplished. Now, I don't know the answer to that, and I think that this is a debate that needs to continue raging, and it'll it'll take place amongst theologians. But for us and for our purposes, we can recognize that God did all of this so that we could be saved. That the person of the Trinity, Jesus, was sent here so that we can be saved. That God was willing to let go of the very substance of God. To let it succumb to death so that death could be overcome. That's one of the core beliefs of the Trinity. If we take away that divinity of Jesus, then we're just talking about another human being suffering and there's no redemption there. It's just another human being suffering. But this assertion that it was very God who suffered for our behalf and who was crucified on our behalf, that's the thrust of the Trinity. The Trinitarian beliefs, they help us to understand not just who God is, but what God did for us. The lengths to which God was willing to go. We get this language from the Trinity. And then we get to the third section, the Holy Spirit. It's that third paragraph there. And one of the most hotly contested phrases in this paragraph is where the Creed says, "...who proceedeth from the Father and the Son." If you look at some versions of this Creed, particularly ones in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, you will not have the phrase, "...and the Son." In the Eastern Orthodox tradition and in Eastern Christianity in general, the Holy Spirit proceeds solely from the Father. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are begotten of the Father. But here in this version, this is the Western version, it's the Father and the Son. This is one of those big debates that focuses on is there is there a priority order here in the persons of the Trinity and the Eastern version wanted to very clearly assert that there is no priority that all of the persons of the Trinity are on equal footing. So Jesus and the Spirit both being begotten of the Father puts them on a little more even ground. And I'd say the Eastern tradition has a little bit easier time talking about the work of the Holy Spirit than the Western tradition. In the version that we have here, that Jesus proceedeth from the Father, sorry, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's, I'll just be, I'll just confess, it's a worthwhile debate as to whether or not we need to have and the Son there. I'm not, intelligent enough and haven't figured enough out to have strong opinions on this, but I think it is a worthwhile debate. We have to recognize that the Holy Spirit is an equal person in the Trinity. That all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are integral to understanding Christian faith. And I think too often we treat the Holy Spirit as a footnote. We treat the Holy Spirit, especially in traditions like ours, in the Presbyterian tradition, we... Don't acknowledge the work of the Spirit as clearly as we acknowledge the work of Jesus and the work of God the Father. But the intent of this creed was never to make the Holy Spirit less than. In fact, the overall purpose of this creed is to lift up the Holy Spirit as a co equal person in the Trinity with the other two persons. And it's the Holy Spirit's work that establishes the, the worship. Of God, and it's the Holy Spirit's work that establishes the church, the Catholic and apostolic. When Catholic is there in this creed, it's universal. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic just means universal. The baptism for the remission of sins is the work of the Holy Spirit also, and that looking forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, that hope is sustained by the Holy Spirit. So, in this third paragraph, focused on the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit lifted up as an equal person in the Trinity who does this central work. And the Nicene Creed, it should raise up our awareness of the Holy Spirit's work and our, our need to acknowledge the Holy Spirit's work more clearly. So what we have here in the Nicene Creed? is a description of the persons of God. They are all of one substance. Notice Jesus is begotten, not made. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. They are all of one substance. Yet, there is distinction and there is personality between them. The, substance, or the, the different persons don't flow into one another. It's not God putting on a mask and taking off that mask. The Holy Spirit will always behave as the Holy Spirit. Jesus will always behave as Jesus. And God the Father will always behave as God the Father. They don't overlap. They are distinct of one another. And yet somehow, they are the same substance. This doesn't make sense. But that doesn't mean that it's not true. Somewhere along the line, many of us human beings, we began to believe that in order for something to be true, it has to make sense. It has to fit our ideas of rationality. That in order for something to be true, we had to be able to explain it, to repeat it, It's funny that that belief set in for us, that things that don't make sense to us all of a sudden means they're not true. Because when you actually look around at the reality of the world, there's very little that does make sense. Making sense of something, it means that we rely on our past experience, our past knowledge, to be able to understand and explain something. But there's so very little that we can actually explain that well. Most of the time, we're just doing the best we can. I mean, here I am, a person whose body is made up of random little molecules that are held together by some force we don't really understand. And I have a brain that sends electrical impulses that then causes my mouth to make certain noises, And those noises are somehow being saved and put onto this thing called the internet and traveling through the air so that you can now listen to these sounds that my brain is telling my mouth to make. And somehow you understand some of the thoughts that are happening in my mind. You can describe that process, but you can't make sense of it. We don't know how it all actually works. And that's true of so many different things in our lives. Most of the time, our language isn't actually explaining things, it's just describing what we've witnessed. And here with the Trinity, the writers of Scripture, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe, were describing what they witnessed. And hundreds of years later, when Christians were putting together the Nicene Creed, they were describing what they read in scripture. That's really what language does for us. It it doesn't explain things, but it describes it. And just because it doesn't make sense, just because something doesn't match up with our preconceived notions, it doesn't mean it's not true. But these Christians, they believed in what they had witnessed. And what they are describing, they believe that that's how God behaved and that's how God functioned. So the Trinitarian language, it isn't meant to explain God's reality. It's meant to show as best as we can in human language, a description of how God interacts within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and with the world. And it gives us a description, more importantly, of what God was willing to do to save creation, to redeem creation, to create the conditions for resurrection. The Trinity, the Nicene Creed, this language, it is a means to an end. And the end is people understanding who God is who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, so that they can look at their lives and they can use this language to describe how God is interacting with them in their lives. That is what Trinitarian language does for us. It gives us a better description of how God works in Scripture so we can see God work in our lives today. That's the affirmation of Nicaea, and that's the assertion of Nicaea also. So, reflect on the Nicene Creed. Look at this language. Figure out what it's describing. Recognize that there is mystery here. Recognize that we can't explain it. That description is not explanation. But use this language as a guide, as an assistant, as a help to letting other people know how God is active in their lives. That's what Trinitarian language does for us. So next week, we're going to be wrapping up this series on the essentials. And we're going to be talking about some of the legacy of Trinitarian language, the, the Nicene Creed, what it has led to, the conversations it has led to. So I look forward to that. God bless you.